Hello and welcome to this extra episode of The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks has an additional extra this week. Hello and welcome to this additional episode of The Film File. And Andy, we have a special guest. Yes, uh, we've got Adam Nelson, who's the director of the award-winning feature film Little Pieces which got critical acclaim during its initial review run and was nominated for a National Film Award back in 2016. Um, he's joining us today to talk about how he got involved in film, what his passion for film comes from, and also his latest project, The Maya, which is currently going through a crowdfunding process that anyone can get involved in. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Um, we want to know everything you want to tell us about Apple Park Films. And, and tell us what it means to be breaking into the film industry in a time when we're going through global change and the industry's changing quite a lot. Oh, crikey. So uh, Apple Park Films is is my production company. Its namesake is from the first short film that I made that had any sort of real kind of success or weight behind it. I made a short film called The House Near Apple Park, and that was the first one that People, other people watched and liked and it got into some festivals and people sort of didn't win any awards but people got to see it and that was really kind of like the impetus for me before that everything I'd made had been kind of very personal I'd made it for myself just to kind of test things out and I figured that because I'd made this short film that had been somewhat of a success for 300 pounds across three days I thought well Stands to reason that if I take 30 days and I have £6,000, I can probably make a feature film, which is what I decided to do. And not coming from a sort of film school background and not coming from a production background of any kind, I had no idea just how kind of crazy that notion actually was. So we went into it with both feet. We leapt in with both feet. And what came out at the end of it was... Little Pieces, our first feature film. It's a film that is very kind of dear to me in the sense that I wanted to make a feature film to prove that I could do it. The whole purpose of going in to make it was not so much to make a film that was really successful, but more just to be able to prove to myself and to investors for future projects that, look, I can take an idea from concept through to finished product. Um, and it, it did that. And then we got it out into the world and people started to see it and it got some really positive reviews. And then it played in a couple of festivals, won a couple of awards, and then somehow it got nominated for a National Film Award alongside some really big films like The Danish Girl, uh, 45 Years with Charlotte Rambling, The Fassbender, Macbeth. And you know anyone who's seen Little Pieces will tell you it is what it is. It's a £6,000 back garden indie film made by good people who knew how to make a film but didn't really know what we were doing. We just went and did it. And it's like in no way comparable to, to those films, films of those kind of quality. So that was a really great event to go to because I was able to go fully in the knowledge that I wasn't going to win and I wouldn't have to stand up on stage and make a speech. And so I was able to just enjoy the evening. And from there, things have progressed really smoothly i at that award ceremony i was um a friend of a, one of the actors in the film who is an incredibly wealthy man he paid for us all to go uh him and the entire cast and crew so we all got to go and we all got to share in it and then whilst he was there we made a bet 
and I won. So I got 10 grand to make a short film that was uh, went on to be Emotional Motor Unit, which was my desire to make a short film that was stylish and I could take all the lessons I'd learned making little pieces and put it into a short film. And so that £10,000 that we got for that was really beneficial because we were able to hire like proper crew and people who really knew what they were doing. And, you know, that level really shows in the film. The film, I think, is a really polished piece of work. So do you think, Adam, by... I think there's a lot to be said about naivety to a degree and, and, and almost innocence, that that when you start to learn the the business and the trade, it almost makes things harder. I think it, it, to some extent it, it can make your career path more difficult because you... When you when you want to do something and it's the first time you've 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 done it, you jump in and you learn as you go along, and then you, and you learn the mistakes and that sort of thing. So I think there's a there's something to be said about um, about an innocence to the way that the industries uh, um, the industry is. I remember uh, I think I was talking about this on the show. I remember talking to having this great idea for a TV series and calling Jonathan Ross's production company up. I'm pitching it, and I'd not made anything at that stage. I was just fresh out of uni. So, do you think there's a lot to be said by uh, just just going with gut instinct and 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 a, and a go go for it attitude and and a, a degree of innocence, personal passion as well? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Yeah, no, I absolutely think so. I, so at that point, like I had no idea what was going to happen. I just wanted to make a film, and it was one of the things on my list that. I've decided this is what I want to do. My sort of past has always been very strongly invested in storytelling. That's who I am growing up. But once I'd made that and I'd gotten into the room with like bigger people and then I'd made a short film for £10,000, like my next project, I always felt like the next thing has to be bigger and it has to be bigger and it has to be bigger. And so as a result, I found myself stalling a lot because Little Pieces is a feature film, but because it's a back garden independent feature film, in the industry, I've not really made a feature film. You know, I'm still not a safe pair of hands. I'm still not someone that people will necessarily trust to go and take their project and their film. So what we're what we're doing with the Maya, the film we're currently doing, is it's almost like a going back to that sort of innocent approach in that we know we're going to have this much money. We know we're only going to film in one location so we don't have to spend lots of time moving around and lots of uh, spending lots of money on different locations. And it's going back to that kind of raw, innocent guerrilla style filmmaking. Still aiming to make the best film we possibly can so that we can then go on to do more things and bigger things. Cool. So, so what's your background? Um, my background is, I, when I was younger, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was kind of, I kind of just kind of moved through school. Um, I was the odd kid that just got on with things. And what I really loved doing was writing stories. I loved films, and my love of films come from my love of sharks. <laughs> I'm seeing a tie The first thing I ever loved was sharks, and so my parents <laughs> showed me Jaws, and I fell in love with it. You know, you're, you're instantly a guest on the show if you love Jaws. <laughs> I did tell you that there might be some geeking out over Jaws on this show. We've literally just released the podcast episode with us deep diving into that perfect film. <laughs> it's, it's just, yeah, it's a marvellous film. It's a game changer for so many people, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, and then um, and then I got to see Jurassic Park in the cinema when it first came out, and I went about five times, and that was the time I realised that going to the cinema is a is a special thing in and of itself. That it's not just about 
watching a story unfold at home. I mean, that's perfectly fine. And I enjoy watching movies at home as much as I do in the cinema. But there is something special about sharing a space with people you don't know, watching something new and enjoying it with them. And just for that sort of brief period of time. And then you kind of go your separate ways and that's it. But there's something special about that, just that period of time. The whole experience. It's its something that we comment very regularly on the show. And I know that online, um, both you and I are very, very pro-cinema when certain people are very cinema is dead attitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, cinema's been around a long time and people go to the cinema for a different reason than you can get watching films at home. It's about the experience. It's not just about watching it's too true. So what I would do when I was younger is I would write short stories based on the films I'd seen. And um, that eventually kind of progressed and I got more and more confident doing that. I wrote, I found I was really good at creative writing at school. And I remember the first time I wrote something that people really kind of enjoyed was in an English class. We'd been given a, a sort of timed assessment. We had to do a bit of creative writing and I wrote a story about three guys on a boat being attacked by a giant squid. <laughs> I don't know where the influence came from. I can't We had 45 it. minutes to write it, and I wrote and, um, I wrote it, <laughs> and I ran out of time, so it ended on a real cliffhanger. And then a week later, the teacher was giving back everybody's stories, and mine was the only one that didn't come back. And because I was mischievous at school and I wasn't necessarily the best-behaved young man, my instant reaction was, oh, shit, what have I done now? And then she sat at the front of the class, the English teacher um, sat at the front of the class, and she read the story to the whole class. And I was mortified. I was embarrassed because this was the first time anything I'd ever written had been shared with anybody else. But what I noticed was everybody, as the story went on, just lent in, and that was quite a wonderful feeling. And then when it ended on the cliffhanger... Someone in the class who didn't like me had would never speak to me at all turned and said, so what happened? That was a great kind of feeling because I knew then there was something inside. I didn't know the words for it, but I knew that I had them. You demonstrated this with the house near Apple Park, um, which I got to the end of that and was like, I want more. What, what are you leaving it there for? Great little short film. Right, thank you. After you, um, after you finished school, you did film studies at the University of Portsmouth. So... I teach film studies at the moment in between yeah. filming gigs. It, I'm, I'm guessing that was primarily more technical based than say, uh, or was it more of a theory course? Did it, did it open up the doors to learn the, the key moments of the craft, directing, editing, writing, etc.? Not really, no. It was very theoretical. I had a, a, a moment in school. I had two moments just as I was leaving school. The first was, you know, suddenly college was a thing that I was confronted with and that I knew I would have to do. And I had no idea what I was doing. And then someone was like, oh, yeah, you should do like media because you get to make films and you like films. So, yeah, so I went along to the guidance person at school and said, oh, this, this B-Tech in media production seems all right. Is this the sort of thing I should do? And her response was, no, you're too smart to do a B-Tech, go do A-levels. <laughs> so I went to do A-levels and I wandered into the college and I asked about, like, different A-levels that would do my interest. And I got film and media studies. And they were like, you have to do a third. Otherwise, you're going to pay to come to college. So I went into the law bit and I went into the psychology bit and I asked which was harder. And they said, law is by far the hardest. So I picked (laughs) psychology because 
you know, I was a teenager. I was lazy. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did film, media, and psychology when I was at college. And then all of a sudden, that was ending, and university was a thing that I had to do because I didn't want a job, and I didn't know what I would do if I was to go and get a job. So I was very lucky because when I went to university, it was still the time when you could like sign up at the last minute. Now you've got to like sign up like well in advance. You've got to show an interest well in advance. Then I think about two weeks before I sat my final A-level exams, I wandered into the college library and I was like, what's this UCAS thing all about it? And I applied to do film studies, uh, creative writing and psychology. And then when it really came to crunch time and I thought, what am I going to spend the next three years of my life doing and spend this much money on doing, I thought, you know, it'll be film studies because that's what I really enjoy doing. And it was really theoretical. It was, I did a little bit of filmmaking there and I found that I had a knack for editing. I'd found that when I did the practical elements of the course at college and I found that I had a knack for editing and we made a few little bits and pieces. And then in our second year, we got the chance to make a, a short film, a proper short film, not just a, like a little bit or a little vignette. And that was the first time we made something and I thought this is actually really fun. Making films is really fun. And then I came to the end of university and once again was confronted with that dreadful feeling of I don't know what I'm going to do. I'd always wanted to be a writer when I was younger and as I left school, um, my English teacher wrote in my Leavers book, invite me to the book signing. And when I went to see her and I said, do you really think I can do it? She said, well, it'll either be that or I'll be visiting you in prison. <laughs> and so like, whilst I was at college, I wrote this novella. Um, I didn't know it was a novella. Uh, I just started writing something and it grew to the length of the novella and I ripped off a load of stuff. And I found a little boutique publisher that published horror and sci-fi novellas. And it was a, it was a horror novella. And I sent it to them. And like again, that it was just a sense of naivety. I didn't know what I was doing. I just like I'd written something and they published things, so it made sense to send it to them. And they sent me a really lovely email back that said, Look, the fact that you've written something like this at the ages of sort of fifteen and sixteen is really good, but it's not publishable in its current state. Um, and it's also not very original because, of course, whatever you write at 15, 16 isn't very original because you're just taking the things that you're But, again, you've got a real sense of how to pace a story and it's really, like, you know, don't give up. Whatever you do, don't give up because I'm sure we'll see something from you in the future. Of course, at 16 years old, the first thing I did was give up. <laughs> as soon as I've been rejected like that, I just went home. But it is great, isn't it, when you get that encouragement, when, when you do find, and, and I think moving in, into any creative element, whether it's filmmaking, or, or writing, uh, a, a musician, it, it's, you, need to, you need to hear that constructive enforcement of your ideas. It, and it is so easy to give up, isn't it? I, you know, there are so many naysayers who go, you'll never do this. I mean, I used to get, You'll never, you'll never be able to work in, in music video because you live in the north. You may as well pack it in now because for whatever reason, being a northerner will stop you being uh, a filmmaker. And, and I think you've got to really hang on to those little voices that, 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 yeah. that get through to you, that, that, that land and make you, make you think, yeah, maybe it is possible. 
Yeah, and I think if I'd have been just a little bit older, I'd have probably taken the letter in the spirit that it was it was intended. But because I was sixteen, and like I just like, I felt crushed, so I didn't write anything for ages after that. And I was actually really miserable in my sort of like sixteen through to about twenty two. And I know it's kind of common for like sixteen to nineteen year olds to be miserable because teenagers and hormones and such. But I was proper miserable, like right up to about twenty two, twenty three. And I do think that it's because I wasn't expressing myself creatively. And what happened when I finished uni was I got a letter from the higher ed department there who said we're looking for people who can teach film studies. It's a it's a small it's a specialist subject. There's not many people who can teach it as a specialism. We will pay you £9,000 to come and learn to teach in colleges. And I was just like, well, I might as well do that. If they're going to pay me to do it, then I might as well do it. And my course fees had to come out of that, and I was paid in a like a monthly sort of fashion so that it was kind of like a wage and there was no chance of me just taking the nine grand and disappearing off with it. But what... That opened up to me was the opportunity to just have a job where I got to talk about film. And really, at that age, that's all I really wanted. So I went and I talked for a bit and I enjoyed it. And then all of a sudden, um, because of budget cuts and restrictions, we suddenly found ourselves in a position where everything was being pulled in and reined in. So I was told, you know, if you want to keep your job, you're going to have to also teach filmmaking. And I was just like, all right. but I'll wing it because I don't want to lose my job and I met doing this I met a man his name is Simon Westcott and he's an incredible man he was an incredible man Um, he used to produce shows for Discovery Channel he did Arthur C. Clarke's Mysteries he um, was the director on the Kilroy Silk chat show he did the News at Six for Thames TV you know you couldn't he, he had done it if it needed to be that he had done it and he was an incredibly supportive man. And what he taught me was that watching stuff is enough to be able to help teach filmmaking and that the cameras and the lights and the editing, they're all skills that you can pick up by practicing and having a go. But the main skill that you need to be able to pass on to the students is this is how you construct a film. And you can get that by, by watching lots of films. And I know there are plenty of filmmakers who agree with me. Um, Werner Herzog is a big supporter of it. He believes that the best film school is watching certain group films. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. I'm absolutely from that school of uh, what I learned in film school. I learned more by deconstructing and reading scripts and watching movies and watching scripts, reading scripts and watching a film at the same time and seeing where the beats are and where... The emotion is and where the turns and twists are in a, in a script. That That's more film school. And i tell you what was always great for me, and I don't know if you found this yourself, is is director's commentaries on, on, on discs. When you've got someone, especially like a mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh, who's yeah. telling you why he, he, he put the camera there or the argument he had with his writer or his DP as to as to why he did it. And I think that opportunity... To, yeah. I mean, we, everybody, everybody always cites people like Robert Rodriguez and uh, and Quentin Tarantino for that. Uh, for their film school was was working in in video stores. Yeah, no, and I I, I agree a hundred percent. And that's what Simon sort of taught me. And 
he was a re- he was really good at building confidence in everyone he spoke to, and sort of through that mentorship, he like he I started writing again because I felt confident enough to start writing again. And then after a little while, kind of like the bug had bit me, and I started making little things. I'd take cameras home from the college at the weekend, and I'd make little bits and pieces. And then my dad turned fifty, and I made a documentary about his life because I thought that would be a nice present for him. So I interviewed my mum and my sister and his wider family, and the emotional kind of response that that got from everybody was just really kind of powerful for me. And I thought, well, I quite like doing this. And then um, what had happened was I'd signed off on a series of books being replaced in this college library. And what I didn't realise is that when they signed off, when they replaced a load of books, they threw the old books out. And Simon was a big, like, he really didn't like wastage. He didn't like things being wasted at all. So I came back into the office one day and I saw this stack of books on my desk. And you'll forgive me for dropping a swear word in, but... Simon, before I'd even managed to ask what's, what's going on, he just looked up here. Adam, if you haven't read those books on your desk, you really fucking should because they're really fucking good. <laughs> they will tell you everything you need to know. And one of those books was the Guerrilla Filmmakers you were gonna say uh, that. Blueprint by Chris Jones. I knew you were going to say that one. <laughs> it was big. It was big for me as well. It, well, it just like it, it's so supportive and so um, you know, it just it tells you the message is you can make your film. Um, and I've had the I've had the pleasure of meeting Chris several times since then, and you know he is in person like he is in the book. He's very supportive, and he really pushes you, and he really encourages you. And through reading that and the encouragement I got from Simon, I then went on to make. I thought I'm going to have a go. I've had this script that I've written for a couple of years about a bloke who's obsessed with a house, and I went to make that, and that became the house near Apple Park, and then everything else is kind of gone from there and that's kind of like the background so I didn't come from a film school route I didn't know how to make films I learned on the hoof um, and I learned because I had to teach it um, and I borrowed students from my course the particularly good ones and brought them down to help out because I knew that I needed a team that would be really good at what they did and so I picked the best students and gave them work experience. So we've gone from uh, your short films uh, to your first feature film. What was the route to suddenly think, I want to put together and, and have a production company and start developing further work? And, and, and I'm, I'm assuming potentially look at it as a career. The company, I'd started the company because I wanted to keep the money for films separate from my own money, just because I don't want to... You know, if I take someone else's money, I don't want to have to pay them back out of my own money that I earn in various different ways. You know, I don't just make films. So legally, it protects me that if I make a film and it doesn't make its money back, which is the majority of instances, films don't make all their money back. I then am legally protected from going bust personally. It's just the company that would go bust. So that was the main reason for that. But then... I realised someone when I made after I made little pieces, um, the star in that Finn, his dad um, works in finance, and he explained to me very carefully how you can set up like the company and then set up individual companies for films to keep everything even more separate, which is what I do now. I keep everything very very separate so that one film doesn't affect another film, and uh, it just it makes 
it's a bit harder when it comes to tax season, but it's very good at just making sure that everybody is protected, myself and the investors are protected. Because if I do make something that makes money one day, I don't want to then have to spend the finances for that paying back a film that I made two years before that didn't make any yeah. money. Um, so it just it legally protects everybody and keeps it sort of bound. Plus, uh, you know, I think having a company, it makes it kind of, it sort of cements it in your mind that you are doing something and you are making something and you are making things. You're not just having a bit of a laugh with a camera. Moves it on from being a hobby. To yeah, it, it makes it, yeah. when you suddenly have that responsibility that you have when you run a company, it, it just, it makes it feel more like a career. Yeah. And it is what I want to do. You know, it is the thing that I, well, I, I want to tell stories. That's what I want to do. That's the, it's the thing that still remains the thing that I'm good at. It still remains the thing that I really want to do. Like I can do all sorts of different things. I teach when I'm not making films, but filmmaking is the thing that makes me go, oh yeah, this is what I, I feel alive when I'm doing it in a way that I don't necessarily feel alive when I'm teaching. That's not to say I don't like teaching. I like teaching very much, but like I can work a 14 hour day on a film set and go home and get, three hours sleep and then wake up the next day and still be ready to go and raring for it. So with the work that you're doing, and, and we are living in an incredible time for, for fresh new filmmakers uh, and fresh new production companies where there is a world out there that is devouring uh, content. Have you found that an, an easier pitch to your investors to say, this is no longer the, the realm of it. It might get shown at a few film festivals to suddenly going, there is a world out there where potentially we can aim for Netflix or we can aim for Amazon or one of the 300 million other content providers that's out there. Have you seen the change in the industry and, and has that affected you? Well, my income from the stuff that I have on Amazon went up significantly during the pandemic because more and more people were finding it because they were just devouring everything that was on Amazon. But then Amazon shifted their thing and they took off everything that was a lot of stuff that was independent and hadn't come through a distributor, which I felt was a real shame Yeah, because mm. they had a real like niche there. They were the first company to say, we are going to let people submit stuff to us openly and their royalties at first were really good. I remember when I first put little pieces on there, like I was making three, four hundred pounds a month off of it. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Because if this keeps up, I'll have like earned the money back and we'll be in profit. And that's fantastic. And then they started to squash their rates and it went for I went from earning three, four hundred pounds a month to earning about 30, 40 pence a month because they just they really squashed it. And it always amazed me that they squashed it and they'd always say, it's from fee filmmaker feedback. And I don't know any filmmaker that's ever said, let me earn less for the hard work <laughs> I've been yeah. to this. And then, and then recently they made the decision to just remove a lot of stuff that hadn't come from established sources. It, it is a shame. I can, I can see some of the logic behind it. It was easier for them to do that than to root through all the sort of nonsense that people were uploading because people were uploading like their wedding videos and giving it a flashy title and then people were streaming it and i think the big scandal when uh, one cut of the dead got submitted by someone unofficially might also yeah. have um, led them to have to rethink it which was a shame because it basically like you say crippled independent filmmakers from having that 
easy avenue. It is like a real. It was a shame because they like they were giving it like a real push, and it was a great opportunity for people. Because like, even though we weren't making lots of money, it still would. It was still able to reach a massive audience, and that's that in and of itself is something. Like I could go to people and say, "Look, we're getting like in the area of like nine hundred thousand minutes streamed a month," you know, which is great. But yeah, it kind of came apart. And there are there are streamers that are focusing on independent films but they're just not getting a a hole in the marketplace you need that kind of combination of big name stuff to lure people in because yeah why is someone going to pay 5.99 to sign up to one that only shows independent films that could be of like really varying quality when they can pay 5.99 and sign up to disney plus and know that there's going to be a standard so there there is that it's a real shame in that in terms of pitching to investors, it's still really hard for me to pitch to investors because I'm still not considered a safe pair of hands. It's, it's quite a shame in that respect. But, you know, the purpose of the mire, again, is to show that oh, I can do this twice. Um, and then hopefully that will then... The film I want to do after the mire is a, is a hard genre piece. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to go then to people and say, look, I've made two films, both of which have had some success. We have interest from distributors from the Maya, which is quite good. We've sort of gone that way first this time. Rather than make the film and then try and sell it, we've gone to people first and said, look, this is what we're making. Is it of interest to you? Quite a few people have said yes. Um, There's one company in the States that saw Emotional Motor Unit, and they couldn't do anything with it because it had already been out four years. But they said, whatever you do next, send it to us first because we're really interested in you. And that was quite nice to hear, that they were interested Mm. in me, not just the, the film. So hopefully the combination of having made two films, those two have having had some form of success and then making a, a genre piece, making a horror piece, sort of like encourage people to say, okay, yeah, we'll take, a, we'll take a punt on this. We'll take a risk on it and see where it goes. That's the plan, at least. I still, net, unfortunately, COVID put, paid to a lot of networking. It was quite, you know, I would make a point before the pandemic of going to London at least once a month and getting into rooms with people and having conversations and meeting people. Obviously, I haven't been able to do that since February 2019. I've got the London Screenwriters Festival coming up in September, and I'm just really looking forward to being able to go into a room with people and talk to people again in that sense. So, yeah, it, it is changing. What I find really interesting about the streamers is how they've become kind of like the homes to films that I really liked growing up. Those kind of mid-budget uh, thriller films, you know, they'd usually star Kurt Russell or someone like that, um, Kiefer Sutherland, that don't necessarily have a massive place in the cinema at the minute because everything is big and massive budgets. But they're finding a home on streamers, and I quite like that because it shows that there's a market for those films and that people do still want to see them. So what I think the benefit of streamers, I think, and the way that things have changed is that it's showing that actually people do still have an interest in these types of films. And if they can't see them at the cinema, they will see them elsewhere. And so it will encourage people to make them more. Um, you know, we're not going to start just seeing everything either being really small, low budget indie or 300,000 cars exploding and stuff. Well, if someone wants to pay me to make a 300 million pound exploding car, car chase film i will do that but you know i'd be lying to myself if i said i didn't want to do that because <laughs> those are the films i loved growing up and i would love to make one of that say scale and size you know 
So yeah, I, the landscape is changing. It will continue to change for a couple of years, I think, as we kind of figure out what types of films we want to see where. Um, I was having this discussion with someone a little while ago. It was last year. Um, John Carpenter had said that he felt that the Halloween film that's coming out in October, he said that he would be happy for it to go straight to streaming. And there was a bit of kind of kickback. And I thought, well, actually a Halloween film, I would be more than happy to watch for the first time on a streaming service because it's, it's a Halloween film. Like, if it's out in cinema, I will go. But something like Dune, I'm not mm-hmm. seeing that on a television at home for the first time. I'm going to sit in the cinema and watch that because that's a film that deserves that. And the thing like Halloween yeah. is, I don't know, the first time I saw it was, was on VHS. and It was sort of bring it back home. that I saw it as home viewing. Never saw it at the cinema. Mm-hmm. Well, until I saw it at a festival years later, but I saw it on VHS. Yeah. So I'm going to round things up now, Adam, and, and get us to uh, tell us about your next project, the Maya. You've you've um, a little bit of prelude to it. What do we expect from that? How uh, how's it going? When are we likely to see it? And a little bit about the film itself. So uh, Maya is a contained thriller, and it's about the cult leader who is um, who has convinced his followers to give him their earthly belongings and all their cash because he's convinced them that they're about to, in his words, ascend. But what that is, is it's a planned mass suicide for the entire cult. He has no intention of joining them. He's going to take the money and scarper. But on the sort of eve of this happening, his two top lieutenants are worried because he's not issued the final instructions on what people are to do and what time they are to do it. So they trap him in the church that they've built. He's been doing this a long time. It's a long con for him. You know, he's been at it for eight years. And they try and convince him to rejoin the fold and rejoin this mass suicide. And he's put himself in a position because he knows he's lying and he's always been lying. But they absolutely believe everything he said. And where he's built in defense mechanisms for people who challenge him on lying, they're now using those defense mechanisms against him when he's trying to convince them that actually he needs to leave and get out. So he's trapped himself there. And it becomes like a battle of wits played out over the course of one evening. And we also look back into the history of how he is with these two lieutenants and how he's taken two very vulnerable people who are in very vulnerable positions and manipulated them into doing his bidding and becoming who he wants them to be and it's something that I've always found like massively fascinating because I'm I'm agnostic but I'm really fascinated about what people believe and why they believe also how people might use those things those beliefs to manipulate people Um, I'm really fascinated by cults and cult leaders I'm really fascinated by I was raised a Roman Catholic I went to a Roman Catholic school Um, and I am like quite fascinated by these massive preachers in the US who run these mega churches and live in $4.2 million mansions and drive really expensive cars. Yet, admittedly, I've not read the Bible with any sort of meaning for a long time. But if I recall, it had very clear viewpoints on uh, amassing money and not helping people in need with it and so on and so forth. So at at its heart, the writer Chris best describes it as a morality tale told from the perspective of quite possibly the most immoral man you'll ever meet. Um, and it that is a really good way to look at it because he is immoral and we are looking at the film through his eyes and it is we are asking people to 
not empathise, but to be interested in a bad person um, and look at his story. Because I'm a firm believer that characters don't always have to be nice and likeable, but actually they just have to be interesting. And, and you used to get that a lot. And if you listen to this show, I'm always harping on about my love of 70s cinema, but you used to get interesting characters who were who were morally morally grey as your leading uh, as your leading character and you'd always get a, a Gene Hackman playing those characters and they were always always morally intriguing not necessarily the good guy yeah well I mean if you look at you know The Godfather is consistently voted as like the best film of all time and you know Michael Corleone is not a good person as much as he wants to believe he is he's not a good person at all People, characters don't have to be likeable at all. Batman as a character is incredibly unlikable, yet people will flock to the cinema to see a Batman film. You know, but he's not likeable as a person. Bruce Wayne's not likeable. Batman's not likeable. Doesn't do nice things. He does quite terrible things at times, really. But people will go because it's interesting to see this kind of character that we see as a hero who does, you know, quite awful things to other human beings at times. And yet we root for him. So where are we with the Maya now? What stage are we at? And when can we think about seeing it released? We are quite deep into pre-production. We're doing a crowdfunder at the moment where we're trying to raise the last... The crowdfunder represents the last 16% of the budget, um, which is about forty, uh, which is about £4,000. Um, we've just hit kind of 29% funded. After we went public on Friday last week. So we've just hit 29% after just under a week. That's really good, I think, really positive and optimistic. We're shooting in October. We've got dates locked in. We know when we're going to shoot in October. And then post-production will take hopefully not too long, but because everybody's doing it for deferments and reduced payments, you know, if our editor is offered a job, a paid job, then you know he's going to take that, and I totally understand that and agree with that. So, post will take as long as it needs to take, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to start sort of seeing bits and pieces of it by Christmas, like little clips, little teasers, and so forth. I'd like to try and get it onto the festival circuit next year. I think it's a festival film. I'd like it to premiere at like a, a, a good festival with a good name. Just because one of the other sort of massive things that's changed in the industry is the nature of film festivals. There's so many of them now, and they're all handing out awards and so on and so forth. So one of the other things that happens yeah. a lot now is people introduce themselves as an award-winning filmmaker, which, you know, is true. It's it's not a lie, but an award from Tribeca is very different from an award from some festival that screens 25 <laughs> films a week. Bob Norigis Film Festival. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm not knocking small film festivals because that's the ones that, like, really helped us out. Mm. You know, we, we got into the Dorking Film Festival with Little Pieces and we were able to take it there and watch it with an audience and they were really great and they're really nice people and I've been back several times since. Small film festivals are, are really, really good for introducing people who might not see films of a certain type. But, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm at the point now where... I'd really like to make an impact with where we launch it and where people get to see it. So I'm looking at that kind of mid to upper range um, sort of festival. I might start courting people once we've got 
some footage, I might start courting some of the organisers and getting in contact in advance to see if there's a chance we can give you an screen. So if anybody wants to help you out with that last 16% of the budget, how can they do so? So we're, we're on the crowdfunding platform Greenlit. It's the project page is greenlit.com slash project slash Meyer, M-I-R-E. However, that's quite long. So, um, you know, people can follow me on Twitter at Apple Park Films. It's just me, Apple Park Films. So it's not just constantly trying to sell people things. It is at the minute because we're trying to raise money. But I kind of like to treat the account as being like a human being because it is me. It's my views. Why shouldn't I? Um in that respect it makes your account a very honest account it's uh you know we've got chatting on twitter as i mean we're both hide behind a name for a like a brand name but we're both very much ourselves online and i think that's quite important to have that human aspect yeah definitely like there's nothing wrong with being honest it's the way in which you're honest that separates you from people like i i'm i'm perfectly happy to say i didn't like something but I'm not yeah. going to sit on my phone and scream into it that it was shite and tell people not to go see it. I'm not naming any names, not that I have to. <laughs> you know, there's a difference there between saying, oh, that wasn't that wasn't for me, that wasn't my cup of tea, to like bellowing down your phone at midnight that it was shite and not to go see it. And, you know, that honesty is, I think, slightly refreshing. Like, I like to support independent filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to pretend I really like something that I don't. Because I wouldn't expect them to do it to me, you know. I I wouldn't expect them to do the same thing to me. I think, you know, that sort of falseness doesn't help anybody. Yeah. If someone goes to, if someone pays to see something, you know, they should make an informed choice and they should get all sorts of different perspectives on it. You know, it doesn't. And it shouldn't hurt people's feelings if someone says, oh, you know, I saw your film. It wasn't really for me, but, you know, well done. You know, if I don't get upset about the reviews on the American Amazon site about little pieces. You know, they're not polite. <laughs> you know, I don't get upset about those. I had some reviews from reviewers of the film that, that weren't polite. Um, and it's just like, oh, oh, well, I'll move on. You know, can't please everybody. And I'd rather someone be honest than, yeah. you know, that deliver false platitudes. Yeah, exactly. We'll provide links to your uh, Twitter feed and also to the crowdfunding project in the description of this episode to help people find you. Yeah, and like I say, you know, people are welcome to come along for the journey. I enjoy, I use Twitter a lot. Um, I like to think that I'm generally quite positive on there. So even though, like you say, I'm honest, yeah. you know, it's not like I'm nasty or negative or... It's too easy to be nasty um, negative, might, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah, like I might poke fun at certain individuals <laughs> a little bit. Can't think but, who you can to be you know, talking about there. <laughs> uh, you know, to be fair, he shot first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll ask Andy about that one. Um, <laughs> he he fired first. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Adam, best of luck with the Maya. Best of luck Thank with you all your, uh, your all your intentions. It's always great to talk to filmmakers who've got a passion for what they're doing and and just to you know just to bring it back home that we live in an age now where technology is so cheap and that you don't need tons and tons of equipment but you do need you just need that that get up and go to make it and you don't have to go to film school and there is a world out there of storytelling and that's the most important thing yeah 
watch films, learn from the films you watch. Um, like you say, you don't need lots of expensive equipment. One of my big kind of passion projects is I'd like to just go on like a bit of a working holiday, take two actors who I've built characters with and go down to Cornwall for a couple of days and just go around different parts of Cornwall and create situations there and see what kind of comes of it. But no one would ever fund it. It would have to be done out of a kind of like mutual appreciation of we're going to play with this and see what we get from it. But, you know, I'd love to do that. And the technology is now so that you can do that and not be wasting loads and loads of money. Yeah. You just talked to Coogan and uh, Bryden. No, they just made a, an entire, <laughs> <laughs> they set up their entire uh, um, uh, uh, retirement plan on just going around eating in restaurants <laughs> and two yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's compelling and people yeah. watch it. You know, it's funny and compelling and interesting and it's great. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Adam. Cheers. And we'll be back for the regular film file before you even notice we've been gone.